an integral part of what makes life rich and makes, you know, that we grow from these challenges. We grow from learning to be with the difficulties as well as the joy. Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome to the Kathy Heller podcast. This show is meant to be a guide for you. I want to be that mentor who can hold your hand through this journey. I know that there are so many twists and turns in navigating not only what is happening in our mind, but also understanding strategically how we want to get from where we are to where we want to go. In the show, we're going to talk not only about how we can start to become aware of what are the subconscious things that are holding us back and how we can instead choose thoughts that are actually going to propel us forward, but in addition to changing the landscape internally, we are going to talk about the strategies that actually will help you to build a profitable business, getting paid to be you. Because when you have a business where you do what you love, you never really have to have that sense of work because it's a pleasure, because it's joy. And really, I want you to have the most abundant life. I want you to have the kind of life that you love waking up to every day that you don't feel like you need a vacation from. So together on the show, every single episode, I want to be your friend. I want to be your mentor. I want to show you what is it that I think has really been insightful, been helpful. What are the tools and strategies? What are the mindset shifts that have helped me? And what are the things that have helped my guests to get to where they are How can we together sort of cross this river to the most fulfilling life where we show up and we feel like we are living into our potential and having the most gorgeous, beautiful experience? Because after all, that is what we all desire. We're all craving to have the most joyful, beautiful life. And I really believe that we can design that and that we can experience a life that we just absolutely love. And not only will we enjoy it, but it will be a possibility for other people. It will show other people what's there for them. And then maybe together, each one of us, by being the happiest versions of ourselves and being the most fulfilled versions of ourselves, we will help other people to reach for that higher branch and to find that in their own life. Hi guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome back to the Kathy Heller podcast. You are going to love today's episode. Before we dive in, I want to tell you about something so, so cool. Every year during this month of January, I do a free five-day workshop. It's called Most Abundant Year, and it's incredible. It's really one of the coolest things I've ever created. We've had thousands and thousands of people take this free workshop, and the things they have to say are just music to my ears. People are so happy that they were part of these workshops. We get letter after letter after letter with people saying that the the content of this workshop completely changed the way they see what's possible, gave them the tools and the steps to build a business doing what they love and change their beliefs about money so that all of a sudden they allowed for huge things to come into their life. If you want to get your seat, just go to kathyheller.com slash workshop. It is free. I will be live with you every day starting January 23rd through the 27th. It's a five-day free workshop. I'll be live every day for an hour, 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. It's going to be so much fun. So grab your friends and get a seat. Go to kathyheller.com slash workshop. So today... We have the brilliant Dr. Bob Waldinger here. He's a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, the co-founder of the Lifespan Research Foundation, a practicing psychiatrist, psychoanalysis, Zen master, and he's also been teaching meditation all around the world. On top of all that, he's the director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development at Massachusetts General Hospital, which is an extraordinary scientific endeavor that began in 1938 and it's still going strong. 
How crazy is that? For over eight decades, the study has tracked the same individuals and their families asking thousands of questions and taking hundreds of measurements from brain scans to blood work with the goal of discovering what really makes for a good life. He's done a TED talk on the topic called What Makes a Good Life, which was viewed over 43 million times, and it's in the top 10 most ever watched TED talks. He wrote a book with his associate director, Mark Schultz, that just came out this week. It's called The Good Life lessons from the world's longest scientific study of happiness and it explores the keys to what makes a happy fulfilling life it's such fascinating research and the book is amazing so make sure that you get a copy bob is so kind and so insightful and being in his presence is just like a sigh of relief he radiates the sense of peace and wisdom and i just want to bottle it up you're going to adore him so without further ado please welcome the remarkable bob waldinger Bob, thank you so much for coming on. I was just saying to you before we hit record how important this work that you do is, how powerful it is. And I'm so excited that you're writing another book and it's coming out soon because we just need it so much. So before we even get into the book, just so people have some context, why don't you tell them a little bit about yourself and what you've been sort of seeking over the last many years and teaching and what's been sort of calling you into your life, what work, what mission you've been on for a long time? Sure. So I'm I'm what I used to think of as a weird combination of things. I'm a psychiatrist. I'm a psychoanalyst. I see patients in talk therapy every day. I'll see two this afternoon. I do research on this study that we'll talk about that's been following the same people for 85 years. And I'm a Zen priest a Zen master, a Roshi. And I used to think these were all like really different, unconnected things. And now I've come to understand that they're so connected that basically what makes me tick, I think, is just an excitement about all the different windows on the experience of being human, that that's what really interests me. Like what is the experience of being human for me What is it like for so many other people? And so I get to learn about it as a psychotherapist. I get to learn about it as a researcher studying thousands of people across time. And I get to learn it sitting on a meditation cushion every day. I was just thinking how blessed for those people who get to be reading your books, but also in your office, you know, anywhere you are, how blessed, because that combination of things, it really is such an offering, what you're offering to the world. So beautiful. It's so powerful how much you understand, how much you've looked and studied. So your observations, the patterns you found, your own quest to find your own stillness. It's so cool. It's just so cool. So my gosh, this new book is coming out soon. It's called The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness. I mean, I wish that we had a thousand hours to talk about it because I want to know everything. I have known about this, that this was going on. I've had people on the podcast reference it and talk about it over the last many years that we've done the podcast. Mm-hmm. You're actually sitting here now putting this book out to give us so much insight into what you found. So tell us, what are some of the things in there that would change our own life if we understood them better? Well, what, what surprised us in studying these lives, the same people over decades, was 
not that taking care of your physical health was good for you. We know it's good for you. What surprised us was that taking care of your relationship health is really good for you. Not just keeps you happier, but it actually keeps your body healthier, helps you stay disability-free longer as you get older, uh, helps you live longer. I mean, we, we didn't believe it at first. That's so profound. Really, it is a shock. You don't think that that would actually have anything to do with having your physical well-being intact. It's amazing that that's true. But it makes so much sense when you say it, like, of course, because there's more at rest inside of you. There's not as much cortisol pumping through your body because you're not being triggered all the time, right? In the same well, way. and that's exactly it. What you just said, like when, you know, because as researchers, we study, well, how would this work? How could relationships possibly get into your body and shape your, your health? And it is about stress and it is about relief from stress. What we see is that good relationships are emotion regulators. They help us return to a kind of equilibrium that we're meant to return to after we're challenged, after we're stressed. That's beautiful. But if you don't have anybody at home or anybody you can call who can do that for you, who can be a good listener when you're stressed, who can give you sound advice, when you have that person, you can literally feel your body calm down when you can tell someone about a stressful experience. If you don't have that person, then what we think happens is you stay in this kind of chronic fight or flight mode, you Mm. stay revved up and we're not, our bodies are not meant to do that. Yeah. Let's talk about that fight or flight mode because I've been a student of this journey since 2001. So I spent three years studying at the UCLA Mindful Awareness Research Center. And that's when I started my meditation practice. Wow. And I spent three years in Jerusalem studying Torah and mysticism and Kabbalah living in the old city, like learning from beautiful teachers, um, which really was like hitting control, alt, delete on the software program of my whole life. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And I met a lot of Jews, by the way, tons of Buddhist Jews hanging out there. I'm a Jew. Tons of us are. That's fascinating, actually. And then I've been just continuously trying to find you know, more and more ways through the looking glass so that I'm more in this, um, I'm more oriented to reality as it is and not in this like very crazy hologram that our brain sort of churns out all the time, which makes us feel this feeling of separation and this feeling of lack. And you have such a, a depth of appreciating and understanding and feeling and integrating what it feels like to come out of the fight or flight, to come out of this feeling of unrest. How can you share that with us that that feels accessible? How can we do that from your standpoint? Probably the first thing I just want to say is that fight or flight is natural, right? That our bodies are meant to react that way to challenges. And so, and stress is natural. Like life is challenging. Like we're never going to be happy all the time. We're never going to be chill all the time. And I know in some ways I'm stating the obvious, except that I think there is this myth out there in the culture that if you just do all the right things, you'll be happy all the time and you'll never be stressed. 
that's just not true for any human being I've ever known, right? And it's so then, yeah, so then how do you do it? And I think what you're saying is so right that that it's finding what helps you return to equilibrium. So what we do know from our science is that relationships are one way that good connections with other people can really help you by helping you know that you're not alone, by helping you feel less ashamed, less upset, all that. But there are other ways too. I mean, we know that cats are enormously calming and helpful. We know that for some people, a relationship with God is enormously helpful, that there are many ways. And so I think that each of us can check in with themselves and say, okay, when I recognize that feeling of calming, where am I? What am I doing? What has helped me to get there? And really pay attention to that and see if there's a way to orient toward those kinds of experiences when you can. Hmm. It's interesting that you've now talked about relationships more than anything else. And in doing a little research about the book, I've, I found that that's one of the biggest takeaways that the strength of our connection to each other. Why do you think that that's so more than finding our own way to feel at ease in our own skin? Why do you think that all the more so when we're in connection to someone else, we find a higher level of happiness? I think we evolved to be social. I mean, this is speculation because no one can actually know this, but one idea that the biologists have is that we evolved to be social creatures because human beings survive better when they are connected with others. Other people can help you. Other people can shield you, keep you safe, right? So if we just think about passing on our genes, the people more likely to pass on their genes were probably the people who had support networks, were probably the people who had a tribe. And that was probably why being exiled was one of the worst punishments you could ever suffer in ancient culture. And now being exiled from your community is still a terrible punishment. So I think this is something that nature selected us out to be, which is social animals. It's interesting you say that because I grew up totally secular. I didn't know anything about God, spirituality, and I wound up through a confluence of events, I wound up studying world religion in college. And then I started to just be so fascinated by all of the things. And then it led to what I shared before. But I remember living in Jerusalem. I think the the most powerful thing was every Friday being invited to a Shabbat dinner. And I felt a feeling that I had never experienced Growing up secular, living in America, I had just never seen no phones at the table, no discussion about business. It was not about, it was just to be gathered. And it was always another invitation. Like every week, you know, you see the city just kind of shut down and everyone goes in their homes. And it's just like, oh, everybody has this sense of always returning to this feeling of this gathering. 
And I thought, wow, that should be in every, in every community. Yes. And there's a reason why these customs evolve over centuries and they do that because they work, right? Like, you know, it's not just that people are following some religious rule. It's that it It feels good. It really works. Right. And my wife and I were just in Mumbai and we were at the homes of several Indian families and they live in multi-generational apartments and they, you know, and they cook together and they eat together and it's a little like Shabbat dinner in Jerusalem. Um, For them, it's every night. And many of us are really worried about the dissolving of this, these kind of cultural supports for us. And that's one of the reasons why we wrote this book, because the worry is that we are becoming more and more disconnected from each other. And so we don't get the benefit that, that people have had for centuries of being in a, in a community. That's so beautiful. And it corroborates perfectly with Dan Buettner's work. And he was here on the show talking about the blue zones and what he discovered about why people live as long as they do. And the oldest people in the world, all living in community, whether it's the Seventh-day Adventists in Luma Linda, or it's these multi-generational families in Japan, it's always that. It just comes back to a feeling of connection, purpose, because you you know who you're for more than you know what you do. It's like, you show up for other people, they show up for you. And it's so beautiful what you just said about how, if that feels like it's it's dissolving, that that's ultimately one of the reasons you wrote this book. Because if you read the title, you might think, oh, what's in this for me? What's in this for me? What's in this for me? But really what you guys discovered is really, if this could put people back together as a community, that would be such a gift. And we need it so badly. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and we need it now because of this polarization. Oh my gosh. And also because of, of how screens have kind of captured our attention. Yes. They hold it so well. I mean, they're beautifully designed to do it. And then even, you know, we, you've seen this, maybe you've been part of it. I have where we're at a dinner at a nice restaurant and everybody's on their Every device. person. You're just like, how can this even be? Yeah. How can this be? Or, or sometimes we'll, I'll be on a beach and I'll see people on the beach and they're not even looking at the magnificent scenery around them. They're on their phones. It's so funny. My husband made that joke the other day. He goes, it's like if you were sitting at a restaurant overlooking the ocean, but you ask for a view of the wall. Like, yeah, why perfect. would you do that? Like, there's a whole, yeah, we were just, we were just talking about it. Um, so I have a question because I mentioned this before we started to record officially and I want to know what you think about it. You know, I think there's so many people, especially who listen to this show who have a tremendous amount of empathy and that's so beautiful. And I think the world in some ways has like an overall empathy deficit. So I feel like empathy is so important and so beautiful. And with that, I think sometimes what I hear from women in this audience who are so nurturing and kind is how could I possibly be happy when they're suffering in the world? And it's an interesting question. I think it deserves an interesting answer because as long as I've been studying history, there's always been some contrast going on, whether you're looking, you know, at medieval times, you're looking at the Inquisition times, you're, I mean, the turn of the cent. there's always some contrast somewhere. There's always some lightness and some darkness. So that's not new. 
Um, but it is interesting how people will come across this, what feels like a double bind, which is I would love to feel peaceful and happy, but until this thing outside of me is peaceful or corrected, I can't feel happy or peaceful, which isn't awesome because we're never, ever going to be able to control, you know, what's going on all around the world and all around the environment in which we live. So what do you think about that? How can we find peace and a level of well-being, even with what's going on in the world as it is? Well, I would go back to the Buddha. (laughs) So the Buddha said, He's quoted as saying life is suffering, but sometimes the it's translated as life is unsatisfactory. And what he meant by that is there is just an unsatisfactory quality to so much of, of human life that life is filled with challenge and pain and not getting what we want, not being with the people that we want to, being too much with people we don't necessarily feel like being with. There are just so many ways. And, and I think what Buddhist teaching is, and teaching, I think, in all wisdom traditions, is that that is a, an integral part of what makes life rich and makes, you know, that we grow from these challenges. We grow from learning to be with the difficulties as well as the joy. And so to say, I can't be happy, I can't feel joy until the world is completely repaired, what a loss, because there is so much joy. And as you said, there's always going to be this suffering. And so the real challenge is to hold both in our lives and to know that we're going to move in and out of moments of joy and moments of great sorrow and despair, and just know that that is the way our life is for every human being on the planet. Yeah, that's really helpful, especially coming from you, because I feel like people hear the love in your voice and how how much you come to it with that that those those ideas. And and also, you know, I think about any images that come to mind for me of the Buddha or Buddhism or anybody who follows any aspect of a Zen tradition like Thich Nhat Hanh and how incredible he was in this 3D form or the Dalai Lama, right? And they ooze joy, right? It's like, it's, it's a level of joy that's not even joy. It's, it's, it's so fine. It's so fine that it's like, it's a frequency higher than happiness. It's, it's like bliss. And so I guess the next question is, you know, what you just said in holding both, one of the things that I I loved when I first was learning from John Kabat-Zinn is this idea of just being the witness, right? Like learning without judgment, just to witness what happens, just the sounds, the thoughts, the vibration, the feeling under your feet. And what I find so, so joyful is separating from, you know, in that spinning mind and you're just witnessing it, you know, you're looking out at the snowfall rather than being in the snowfall. And to me, that shift where you're sort of in this more 5D space, you're in this witness, this consciousness, this soul, whatever word works for you, but this aspect of us that is the viewer, right? That part of us feels always like well-being. 
that part of us doesn't suffer. It doesn't, it doesn't seem like that part of us suffers because it's just kind of mesmerized by all of it. Right. Yeah. And you know, all meditative practices help us tune into just the fact of being aware of being alive and being able to perceive in so many ways, just perceive what is. And if you think about it, that is completely miraculous. I mean, what are the chances that any of us would be born, would live a life? And of course, we're not going to have this awareness after a while, it's going to be over. And so when we look at it from that perspective, you know, as I think the Lewis Thomas, the biologist said, it's so amazing that we're alive that you would think we would never stop dancing. That's so beautiful. When Deepak Chopra was here, I said, why do you think there is so much suffering? And he said, because people don't know who they are. They identify with themselves as a body, you know, a body is just the car, you know, and that's where um, my rabbi in Jerusalem, you know, they actually know each other and they literally say the exact same things. Like every word out of their mouth is the exact same thing, right? My, my rabbi said to me, you're someone because you're some of the one. All that exists is infinite space. It just looks 3D. It's not read Einstein, you know? So I think that's where the suffering comes in. The suffering comes from identifying so strongly with what is an illusion really. And how is it, do you think that people could start to, because when I talk to people about this, they say, so what should I practice in order to do that? I say, well, meditation helps. They say, but meditation makes me anxious and I don't know how to do it. And I can never clear my mind. So I have a whole mouthful I share with them about how you don't have to clear your mind. You just have to witness it and people get anxious. So short of being able for people to take on a meditation practice, what might be a baby step into having more of this feeling of well-being because we separate ourselves from this very, it's just a very stressful paradigm where we are listening to every thought we think thousands and thousands of them a day. So many of them are reactive and it's very fight or flight. It's very much about separation and ego. Like how do you think people could take a step toward peace from that place? Great, great question. You know, I think that first of all, not everybody should meditate. Some people just don't like it. They don't feel good doing it. And so even though I have found meditation to be a wonderful life-changing practice, it isn't for everybody. So for your audience, don't feel bad people if meditation is not for you, but there are things we can find. And so what I would say is, you know, just what you were saying, Kathy, that Think about the times when you're just in whatever activity you're doing. You're just in it. You're not even thinking about yourself. Time flies by. Some psychologists call this flow, where you're yeah. just in the experience. It could be, for some people, it's, it's skiing down a ski slope because you can't think of anything else or you'll crash if you're not just in the experience, mind and body of going down that slope. For some people, it's gardening. For some people, it's bicycling. It could be so many different things. Yoga, for sure. So find that practice, that experience that for you is just, you're just in it without thinking about me or mine. 
and pay attention to that and know what that's like. And I think what you will find is that there you get a taste of this experience that we're pointing to, that you can have where essentially the prison of self kind of falls away. David Foster Wallace, the writer, called this experience being trapped in our skull-sized kingdoms. And there are times Uh, when we can get out of that and just be in the world, whether it's meditating on a cushion or looking at a flower or, you know, riding a bike down a beautiful path. Yeah, it's all about where we put our focus. It's amazing how that, what you just said, like inside the skull, like we get trapped in there. And there's so much here. We just don't necessarily have a a state of being where we're where we're aware of it. It's just awareness, like you said. I'm curious in the study that you wrote this book about, what were the things that people pursued that they thought would make them happy that didn't? Mm, well, the usual obvious ones, wealth. Like lots of people thought, if I get rich, I'm gonna be really happy. And that didn't work for most people. High achievement, you know, some of our people were undergraduates at Harvard College, you know, so high achievers already when they got into the study. And then, you know, they thought, well, if I just achieve more, get more awards, get promoted, I'll be happy. And of course, they found that the awards don't make you happy. And fame. Some people thought if I just become famous, if more and more people who I've never met, know my name. That's going to make me happier. And so those things don't work. They don't necessarily make you unhappy, but they don't make you happy. And that's what people found. So that when, when people were in their 80s, we asked them to look back on their lives and we said, what are you proudest of? And what do you regret the most? And one of the things that people regretted the most was not spending enough time with the people they loved and spending too much time at work. You know, and the the other thing, and this many women said, was I wish I hadn't spent so much time worrying about what other people thought. Yeah. And the things that people were proudest of were all about their relationships. I was a good partner. I raised good kids. I was a good mentor to people at work. I was a good friend, that those were invariably the things they mentioned that they were proudest of looking back on their whole lives. Wow. What do you think that is about? Because when I talk to people and I say on the list of things that you wish for, you know, what do you wish for? It's those first things that you said. I would love to just have an abundance of money. I would love to have these goals achieved, this level of success and some level of an audience, right? It's kind of like a version of the fame thing that you said. What is that about? Why are people so fixated on money, achievement, and audience? Well, the deeper answer for me comes from Buddhism, from this sense of lack that we have. And also, I think the culture is constantly giving us messages about what will make us happy. I mean, think about the ads we see every day on our phones, billboards, on television. The ads show all these things. And if you buy them, the impression is you'll be happy. 
You buy this car, ah, oh, you'll be so happy. If you serve this pasta to your family, your family dinners will always be joyous. If you use this face cream, you, you know, you'll, <laughs> That's you'll, for always, sure it. you'll always look young. And I think it shows us visions of people who are really affluent. You look at the backgrounds in commercials and everybody's rich. Um, it's rich. It's so and they're funny all when happy. you say it. It's true. I don't. It's I never the, thought that. Oh, they're God. all on a boat. They're all rich. They're all like it's true. Rich people are seen as being happy. Yeah. Exactly. And so you. The, so I think what it does is it may and and social media does this. You know, in terms of what we curate for each other. I don't post my most unhappy photos on Instagram. I post my, you know, beautiful meal I'm about to dig into or my vacation picture, right? So we all have this sense of I'm missing out. Real life is being rich and famous and, you know, on vacation and, you know, real life is there and I'm over here. Yeah. That's just not the truth. Uh. So true. I have a, a, one of the rabbis I'm very close with in, in Jerusalem, his grandfather was like a, one of the holiest people. And when he passed in the seventies, 400,000 people came to his funeral. And this was in Israel in the seventies. Okay. Wow. And he was friends with everybody. He was friends with people who had money, who didn't have money, who were religious, who were not religious. Like he was like the holiest person. His name was Rabbi Arya Levine. And it was a time because he was so beloved he was, he was like a guru, you know, and the real kind, there was a time. So Menachem Begin, who was a prime minister offered him a home. They said, we're going to build you a home in the most beautiful. And he said, no, no, I have a home. And his home was literally one room that was the size of, it was like 10 by 10 with a little kerosene, like a hot plate. And he had two shirts and he said, oh, you, you misunderstood. I have a home. Like he was so wealthy. He was so grateful. He was so happy. Right. And so his grandson, who's now he's in his seventies, he took me to like on a little tour and we saw where he lived. And he was like, he was the pinnacle of like the wealthiest, happiest human. Like, so I, it's visceral to me. Like I lived it. I remember, you know, hearing that. And my grandmother grew up in a tenement on the Lower East Side. And if you go to the tenement museum and you, it's amazing. She was like, Kathy, I would go to the library and I would read books and it would take me on adventures. And I didn't know that I was poor. I didn't think about being poor, you know? And then there are people who have lots and lots of money who are miserable. Then there's also people who have lots of money who they're happy, but it's not because of the money. It's because of their own inner compass, right? Exactly. Exactly. So we're being told these kind of lies all day long. And and it's, it's to sell us things. No one's trying to hurt us, but it's to sell us things. But the lie that we take away from it is... If I'm wealthy, I'll be happy. And the thing, you know, as the saying goes, the best things in life are free. I mean, like this relationships, connections, like the rabbi. Cry when you say that. It makes me want to cry when you say that because the best things in life are free. Yeah, and that we can have them every day in spades. I'm going to give you one more freebie. So one of my Zen teachers, John Tarrant, said this. He said, "Attention." is the most basic form of love. And what I think is so powerful about that is that probably the greatest gift, the most valuable gift we have to give to anybody else is undivided attention. And that's the thing that we're most, we have the most trouble doing now 
because of all these screens and all the distraction. Isn't that just so true? Oh my God. But it's a freebie. It's a freebie. It's a freebie. It's a freebie. It's so powerful. And I want to go back to something you said when I asked this past question and you said, well, my wisdom tradition would tell me that it's something to do with the lack that we feel. Let's just talk about that for another moment, because I think that's right on when you said that it kind of like sent shockwaves through me. Like it's that, that's it. This feel this constant feeling of lack. Like, ah, oh, I don't have enough followers yet. I didn't quite have enough money so that I could also buy that second. I don't quite feel successful enough. I don't quite, maybe we need another home, another child, another cat, you know? What is that feeling of lack about and how do we let go of that feeling of lack? Well, okay, a bit of a deep dive into Buddhism. There's a teacher whose work I really respect. His name is David Loy, L-O-Y. And he writes about the myth of a separate self. And he's, you know, which you and I just talked about, and we're all walking around with this myth that, you know, I'm Bob, but I'm separate from everything else. And I'm going to go through life. I'm an independent self. Actually, that is a myth. I mean, we have a story. I have a story about a self that I call Bob that, whereas this person called Bob is constantly changing, is constantly dependent on thousands of people and thousands of conditions so that I exist and move through the world, right? But if you sit and look for a self, you can't find it. If you sit on a cushion, meditate and say, who am I? Who is this person I call Bob? You can't find him. And what David Loy says is that that's actually a big source of anxiety, of real fear that we often have this subliminal feeling of, wait, this independent thing I'm calling Bob is really much more fluid and changing and, and not quite real. And if I get that inkling, it's scary. And so what David Loy says is that that feeling of lack makes us want to amass a lot of wealth and amass a lot of possessions and, and build big memorials to ourselves so we'll live on after we die. When the truth is, we're all going to pass away and nobody's going to remember us a thousand years from now. That is so big. It's so fascinating what you just said. Like, we can't find it. And so it's like, there's a part of us that wants to build all of this around it. When really, it's just this oneness, there's just wholeness. And that's where all the feeling of fulfillment is. It's not in the separate self. It's so beautiful what you just said. And no wonder I have another question for you, since not only do you have everything that we've already been talking about at your fingertips, but you're also in the world of psychiatry, you know, Brene Brown's research talks about joy, how joy is the most vulnerable feeling because you let go of the fight or flight. You just like, ah, and then you go, wait, what what did I just do? If I'm in fight or flight, I feel more protected. I feel less vulnerable. So that's fascinating because it's like, all we keep talking about is how we want this thing. So we'll feel joy. We want to feel joy. We want happiness. Right. But then at the end of the day, we're afraid of it. Right. Cause she's saying joy actually scares the hell out of you. So you're going to create drama because you're scared of feeling free of it. So what, what do you think about that? Well, I think also joy is difficult because we know that it's fleeting that everything is changing all the time, right? So joy never lasts. And one of the things that that we do 
our minds say, oh, I want this to last. I want this to stay. Right. And so almost as soon as we start to feel joy, we say, oh my God, but, but I got to keep it around. I got to do what I can to hold on to it. And you can't. It's like holding on to a cloud. You can't do it. So I think that the, the impermanence of joy is part of what we're scared of and uh, makes us try to hold on for dear life. That like makes me want to cry too, because it's so true. It's like, that's why people don't fully let go in relationships. It makes me want to, because it's like, you know, at some point, this is temporary. So you either hold on too tight or you don't fully let yourself go. But it's like, if we can just be in awe sort of, of all of it, you know, like we've been saying, we can just appreciate it for what it is and yeah. stop trying to control so much. Like it's fascinating. And then the other thing I was going to ask you, cause I've done some um, work with Dr. Joe Dispenza. I've been on a, like a week long retreat with him. I did a retreat with him a year ago. He took me to his lab at UCSD. I was like one of 11 people standing there watching pancreatic cancer cells changing because meditators were in the room. I mean, Bob, I wow. stood there and I was like, what is happening? Like, what is happening? It was so beautiful because love is a vibration, right? Because vibration is every, it was just like, what is happening? So one of the things that he talks about is how we become addicted to the suffering because we're addicted to the drug of cortisol and that your mind, every thought creates some kind of a chemical and you being a psychiatrist, you know, with all due respect to him. And he knows so much now that he's been studying. He's not a psychiatrist. He's actually a chiropractor by trade, right? Who's very heavily interested and invested in neuroscience, but you have a different set of tools. So I'm curious what you think about that, because if it's true that every thought doesn't stay just in the mind, but it goes into our cells because every thought is combined with some kind of a feeling, which creates a chemical response. And we're addicted to suffering is what he says. We get addicted to cortisol. We, we want that hit of shame and doubt because our body wants it more than nicotine. So then certain thoughts, he says, can make you actually feel great because they give you a different chemical. There's an internal pharmacy. What do you think about that being who you are with the psychiatry behind you? I think he's right about certain people. So I think that some people who grew up with a lot of drama or trauma equate, have come to feel like, well, that's what being alive is. If life is dramatic, if there's a lot of yelling and screaming in my home, if people are angry and hurtful to each other, that's what being alive is. Right. And for them, it can feel deadening to have calmness. And so many people will find themselves creating drama as a way to reassure themselves that they're really alive. Now, fortunately, most people don't grow up that way. So I think that there are many people who aren't addicted to, you know, to drama, to pain, that it varies a lot depending on what your experience has been. That's interesting. First of all, that's extremely comforting to think that there are people who haven't grown up with that because having grown up with it myself, my parents fought all the time, got divorced and it was just like very tumultuous. Yeah. I think I have this perspective that like most people have some level of strife in their homes, but to hear you say, no, 
not everybody does. I'm just like, I find that very soothing to know that there, there's a, there's a group of humans out there who don't have that. Well, you know what, because everybody has conflict. So any relationship of any length and any depth is going to have differences, right? People are going to disagree. It's how you work out the conflicts. That's key, right? right? That some people argue and say hurtful things and even physically harm each other, right? When they disagree, other people find ways to work it out so that everybody comes away feeling like nobody's lost, nobody's been a victim, but that you've, you've accepted differences or worked them out. And so there are families where people can do that. And that's what I'm describing. Not families where everything's happy all the right, time, right. but families where people really know how to manage and work out differences. Let me ask you this, because there's another thing that I feel like while some people have a sort of memorized understanding of life being a little bit stressful, there are some people who don't have a frame of reference for, well, I guess because of what we're saying, they don't have a frame of reference for a sense of ease. And so it really doesn't feel safe because I meet a lot of women who will say, I'm giving, I'm giving, I'm giving, I'm giving, I'm giving, but like, who am I to receive? And I feel like part of that is they just don't know that it's safe to receive without so much of a cost, so much codependence, so much holding for other people. And that really feels like a important piece because so many people who are well-meaning are like, I'm going to host Thanksgiving. I'm going to do this. I'm going to, you know what? I'll work. I'll volunteer at the church for free. I give my time. Then it comes time for them to think about getting paid to do something and getting paid well. And it's like, well, who would I be to raise my prices? Or it comes to a relationship and somebody wants to, they want to pay the check. No, 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 don't pay for it. And it's almost like this, again, this feeling of unworthiness of a separate self of who am I to have it? It causes a lot of suffering. It seems like something I hear about a lot and something I've struggled with. What do you think about that? Well, I see it a lot. And I think what we hope is that people find new relationships where it's clear that it's good to take care of yourself and it's good to receive, right? right. Some people don't. And then psychotherapy can really help. I mean, one of the things that I find in working with people is that many people are completely unaware of how they push away what others offer them because they feel that it's not okay, that they're not allowed. And so some of it is first just becoming aware. And then after you become aware, being with the experience of letting yourself receive something because it's hard. If you're not used to receiving and you feel it's not okay, then you have to get used to the experience of accepting something, being grateful for it and letting yourself have it. You know, in Buddhism, we take a vow to save all beings. And of course, it's an impossible vow. You can't save all beings. But the idea is we take care of everybody in the world that we can. But the Zen teachers always say, The vow is not to save all beings except one, not to save all beings except myself. It's really saving myself as a way to have the strength to care for other people as well. You've got to start with yourself, but many people need help feeling that's okay. Yeah, it's so true. And that's such a beautiful 
thought such an important essential thing is like that loving kindness practice that we send to everyone, but not in spite of ourselves, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's so beautiful. So tell us what what you're most excited about with this book. If you could sort of just free associate, what's one of the things you're hoping people walk away with after they read it? Mm. What I want people to walk away with is the sense that it is really possible to strengthen your relationships, to have relationships that are good, even if you've never had them, even if you think you're bad at it and life has passed you by, that what we know from all these life stories that we tell in the book is that it's never too late to find new good relationships. And then we also give people actual techniques for how to do that. And in different ways, like not just intimate partners, you don't have to have an intimate partner for, for these benefits to be available to you. It's all kinds of friendships, family relationships, work relationships, even casual relationships, even the, the person who gives you your coffee every morning at Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts, right? (laughs) I just want to ask you in two different sort of facets. What's one thing that would make a relationship better in an intimate partnership with a husband and wife or anybody who you're married to? What would be one thing that would make it better? Genuine curiosity. So one of the things we know from studying couples is that we're more tuned into each other when we first get together, when we're dating. Oh, yeah. Right? Right? Because you're so wondering, is this person into me? And who is this person? Right? So you're really curious. The people who are less into each other are people who've been together 10, 20 years. Sure. Right? Because we think, oh, I know. I know what she's going to say. I know what he's going to do. Right? We know each other. Right? And so what if you could bring genuine curiosity to your dinner tonight with the person you live with? Like, you know, one of my Zen teachers gave me the meditation instruction that I think applies here. He said to notice when you're doing something you've done a thousand times, like have, have a meal with your partner. Sure. Ask yourself, what's here that I've never noticed before? Oh my so, gosh. It's a great question. So great the, question. the instruction is find something. So, you know, you're sitting with your partner. What's here that I have never noticed before. That's so good. And what do you think is something that in our friendships or in the the people that we sort of interact with throughout the day, what's something there that could make that feel just so much more like free and easy and and joyful? What might we practice to make those relationships? Because I feel like a lot of times there's a whole bunch that we have to say about our couplehood, whoever we're partnered with. But then there's a lack of friend time. I feel like people don't make time. And sometimes they'll say, well, I don't really have a group of you know people who I really feel like I can be myself with or who I really feel will bring me up. You know, Maybe these people feel like they're complaining around them too much or they feel like they haven't fostered that and they want more friendship. They want more places to just circle up and gather. What's a way to create space like that more in our life so we have that? What I find is that being active makes a difference. So 
I used to think, well, my, my friends are going to be my friends forever. And I don't right. have to do anything about that. Right. Right. And then what, what we know from our study and what I know from my life is that perfectly good friendships can wither away just from neglect. If we're not in touch, it's so if true. we don't see each other. So what I would say that we can do is be active. So we talk in the book about this concept of social fitness, and we mean it to be like physical fitness. So That's cute. like you don't go to the gym today, come home and say, oh, I'm d- I've done that. I don't ever have to do that again. Right. Right? <laughs> and so we think with social fitness, it's the same that let's say there are like a very few people who you just always want in your life and you want to be sure that those connections stay strong. Make sure that you actively reach out, you know, and, and with the people you really want to have in your life, set up a weekly walk or a monthly coffee or a, a monthly phone call, whatever it is, but do something regular. So you don't even have to think about it. It's just yeah. in the calendar and you're going to do it no matter what, you know, my co-author, Mark Schultz, is one of my closest friends. So he's my research collaborator, but he's also my friend. We have a call every Friday at noon for an hour and a half. We have for 25 years. And yeah, we talk about research. We talked about writing this book, but we talk about our lives. We talk about our kids and we talk, you know, and That's our health. So and beautiful. And so it's- what I would say is, even if it's just one person, think about how could you connect with that person regularly. So it's automatic in your life. I love that. You are such a joy. I appreciate you so much. Thank you for being so humble and so wise. Tell us when the book comes out. It's coming out in January, correct? Yeah. And people can, can order it anytime now. And, you know, it's more of this kind of thinking and more of this discussion, you know, with lots of stories about real people in our study. Yeah. This sounds like the kind of book that is just such a must read. It should be required reading and tell them where they can order it. Probably everywhere books are sold, right? Everywhere. Barnes and Noble, Amazon, Indie Books, yeah. Simon & Schuster, the publisher, any any of those places. Amazing. And you also have, by the way, a TED Talk that's been viewed over 43 million times called What Makes a Good Life. So you guys can all check that out. We'll put links to all of this in the show notes. Bob, thank you so much. Thank you for being oh. you. This was a pleasure, Kathy. I really enjoyed it. What a great conversation. You're just a gem. Thank you so much. It was so nice to meet you. I hope our paths cross again. Me too. Me too. How amazing is Bob? He's like the family member you want to have at every family reunion. All right, here are the takeaways. Number one, take care of your relationship health. It helps you be happier and live longer. Number two, we're going to move in and out of moments of joy and moments of great sorrow and despair. That's an integral part of what makes a rich life. We grow from the challenge of learning to be with the difficulties as well as the joy. Number three, it's so amazing that we're alive that you would think we would never stop dancing. Number four, the best things in life are free. Number five, the most valuable gift we have to give to anybody else is our undivided attention. It's the most basic form of love. Number six, take care of yourself and learn to receive. If you want to have the strength to care for other people, you have to start with yourself. Number seven, have genuine curiosity when you're doing something you've done a thousand times and ask yourself, what's here that I've never noticed before? Number eight, be active in your social fitness. Reach out to the few people who you always want in your life. Make sure that those connections stay strong. 
Thank you so much for listening. I never take it for granted that you spend your time here. We have so many good guests coming up on this show. So please be following us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so that you don't miss out. It's free to subscribe. Hit that subscribe button. And if you love this episode or any episode, we would just be so delighted if you left us a review and share the show. If you felt like sharing the show by texting the link to someone or emailing the link or posting about it on Instagram, that would be such a sweet treat. Finally, don't forget, starting January 23rd, I'm doing a free workshop. You can sign up now so you can grab your spot and get inside of the group. The group is already talking and sharing and there's going to be giveaways posted. We're having so much fun already. We will go live starting January 23rd, but you can sign up now. It is free. Go to kathyheller.com slash workshop. I love you so much. I'm going to leave you with a song. I hope you have an amazing weekend. We should get away. Make today a holiday. Steal a little time. Stay and better go outside. Don't matter what we do. As long as I'm with you, you know. My favorite point of view is when you're standing here. You make me happy. I'm so happy. You make me happy, happy. I'm so happy. So happy. Let's walk in the rain. Kiss under the overhang. Share an ice cream cone. Share some secrets no one knows. Don't matter where we are. As long as you're not far from me. You're my favorite guiding star. That's why I'll keep.